Welcome to Jubilee Fellowship. My name is Evan Martin, and it's always a privilege for me to come and have an opportunity to speak with you, uh, and especially on a Father's Day weekend as we celebrate the dads uh, in this room. And if you're watching online, I want to say hello as well. Um, as we were putting this message together as a teaching team, one of the things that came up was the fact that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, and we find that in Matthew chapter 6, what we call the Lord's Prayer, and maybe you've come to church today and you've been away from church for a while, but if you see these words up on the screen or in your Bible, you, they're pretty familiar words to you, and instead of reading through them, you have them in your notes, I want to just highlight the first two words. As Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, the first two words of that prayer are what? Our Father, right? Our Father in heaven. You realize he could have chosen any other word or name to describe a holy God. And instead, he chose Father. Now, as we in this room, probably the majority of us, would raise our hand and say, I'm a Christian. I think Christianity can, uh, holds the connotation that it is a religion, right? But I want to say today that Christianity, it's not a religion. And if you hold it as such, I think we're missing out on a lot of what our God fully intended it to be. See, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And it's a relationship with a holy God who describes himself as our Father. Now, I'm a dad, I've got five kids, and when any of my children want to or need to communicate with me, they don't hesitate. They just come barging in, and it's almost like in mid-sentence, as if I was in the other room or down the hall listening to them as they began to speak to me, right? It doesn't matter if I'm getting ready for work, it doesn't matter if I'm sitting on the toilet, they would come barging in and just ask a question. But why is it that we, in the context of religion with a holy God, process our relationship this way? That what we did last night or what we did yesterday or last month or last year, we hold that in the back of our mind. And so when we enter into the presence of the one who calls us, calls himself our father, we hesitate as if we haven't been granted that access into that relationship, right? So on this day, when we celebrate the dads in this room, 
I want us to process what we're going to say in the context that our holy God calls himself our loving father. We need to learn to live from this mentality, recognizing that our religion is not that, but it's actually a relationship. So as I get going into this conversation, I I encourage you, you guys are the 1045 service. You guys have had time to get your Starbucks or at least your uh, personally brewed caffeine. And so you guys are ready to go. And um, if there's anything that resonates in your heart or in your spirit, don't be afraid to agree with that verbally and give some response because I think what happens, what we do physically helps to lock in what's happening inside of us spiritually, right? And when, when you think, oh man, that's right, that's true, that's good, somebody across the aisle from you might kind of get in gear and accept that as truth for their life, right? Because if it's true for you, it might be true for me. So let's help each other out. Let's help me out as we go through this. And so uh, even if you're at home watching this online, I encourage you um, to look over at your spouse or even just your pet and say, "Mm, that's good. That's good. So, um, all right. I've got a clip uh, from one of my favorite movies, but Before we go into that, you guys know that we're in this summer blockbuster series where we're highlighting um, some of the movies uh, that pull out truths that help us to uh, illustrate a point biblically. And and so before I get to that, I want to talk to you guys about why we love movies. And so if you can uh, think back to the most recent time that you were in a movie theater and you had a positive experience with a movie, um, think about this and, and see if this is true. And you can fill these in as fill in the blanks on your notes. Why I love movies. It's because I'm invited into a narrative with limited participation and even less risk. All right? So the risk is what? I've got five kids, so it's been a long time since I've actually like been to a movie theater, but the cost of a ticket is like $9.50 or something, like way too much, right? But if that movie's bad, what have I risked? My money, right? But it's not like I've risked my life when I go and watch a movie where the main character is running for his or her life, right? I'm drawn in without the danger. We get to experience feelings without any personal cost. Have you ever been in the theater and your heart starts to race and your adrenaline starts to pump and uh, you are experiencing feelings as if you're in that car chase, as if you're in that thrilling moment of that story, but it hasn't cost you anything personally. It's not the car, it's not the tires on your car that are being uh, burned up and then your car being totally thrashed, right? So, In movies, conflicts are resolved, relationships are restored, and good triumphs over evil. That's why we love movies. But as we were putting this list together, the thought was this, that uh, just like we interact with movies, I think sometimes we interact with our faith that same way. So look at your notes and go through that list again, and, and then think about yourself and how we sometimes interact with our faith, we're invited into a narrative and we limit our participation and we don't risk hardly anything at all. We're drawn in, but 
not into anything that's dangerous. Don't, don't ask me to do something dangerous or risky. And then we experience feelings in worship like that set this morning of songs. But it doesn't cost us anything personally. And then just like in movies, conflicts are resolved and relationships are restored and good triumphs over evil. But sometimes in real life, conflicts aren't resolved and relationships stay unresolved and restored. And when that happens, we start to separate ourselves from our theology. Well, if, if good's not triumphing over evil, then maybe some of these other things that I've believed aren't necessarily true. I think this. I think it's easy to be a Christian in America. It might be a little bit too easy. But receive this, if you will. I think that God dreamed a dream. And when he dreamed that dream, he created you. And he created me. And he created the person sitting next to you and the person in front of you and the person behind you. And the truth is this. Each of us have one life to live. And once that's over, there will never ever be that dream of God on this earth. So we can live out this God-breathed dream with very limited participation and even less risk. We can do it in a way that costs us virtually nothing and doesn't put us in any dangerous situation. But I don't think God invites us to the movie theater of faith. I think he invites us onto the set and onto the stage. And he's asking some of us today, perhaps, to risk a little bit more than we have. To live a little bit more dangerously than what we've previously dared. Because I don't know about you, but what God is stirring in my heart is to go deeper and faster and fuller than I ever have in my whole life. I don't want to just sit in the boat. I want to get my feet wet and see if I'm walking towards Jesus, if that water will keep me up. I want to be a wet water walker, right? I don't want to be a dry boat sitter. I want to be a wet water walker because you might only get that one chance. Peter only got that one chance, right? The other disciples, if they're anything like me, probably asked him about that for the rest of their life. So Peter, what was it like? What did it feel like? Did it feel like sand? Kind of just a little bit under the water? Or was it like you were walking on something that was dry? Was it squishy? Was it soft? Was it solid? What was it like, Peter? All the while thinking, man, I wish I would have gotten out of that boat, right? But we can live in our nice, comfortable homes and we can have our nice, convenient commute in our awesome cars and in our scheduled routine and go day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year without hardly risking anything and limiting our participation in this adventure called faith. Could we be world changers if we just dared to step onto the set? You know that Harrison Ford 
wasn't supposed to be Han Solo. The actor that was supposed to be there didn't show up that day and they just needed him to take a script and read it. And all of a sudden, Harrison Ford turned into Han Solo. I wonder how many times we miss that opportunity because we don't dare to read the script that's been put before us. So I have a f some favorite movies. They're the born identity movies. And if I can speak on behalf of all the men in the room, <laughs> we have a secret deep desire that one day we might possibly be just like Jason Bourne. <laughs> and so as we watch, as we watch this short clip, we're going to talk about it in a little bit, but I want you to pay attention to what Matt Damon says in this clip, and then we're going to follow it out, unpack it just a little bit, and be vulnerable with each other. So watch this. I'm not making this up. These are real. Who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? Who has a bank account number in their hip? I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sight lines and looking for an exit. I see the exit sign, too. I'm not worried. I mean, you were shot. People do all kinds of weird and amazing stuff when they're scared. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? So how can I know that and not know who I am? I think if we were vulnerable with each other, we would sit across a cafe table, have that conversation and say, Evan, I know my talents, I know my skills, I know my habits and my routines, but there's something deep down inside that is missing. I feel pulled into this God story, into this narrative but there's something missing. I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do with these talents. And I get nervous when I start to dream big about what God can do in me and through me and with my family, my neighborhood. I think as we allow God to shape and to form our identity, we will understand the role that we're supposed to play in the story that he's inviting us into. So I decided to be honest this weekend with all of you guys. I, for the last six years, 
went to work on my Masters of Divinity. It's a three-year program at the King's University based in Dallas, and uh, they have a campus in Colorado Springs, and I commuted back and forth, and all this over the past six years, um, as we've continued to have children, we have five kids, and um, so life has been busy. We've had late nights and early mornings, and on my days off, I've been reading books and writing papers and doing research and all of these things, and and in May, my wife and I flew down to Dallas, and I walked across a stage like this and received a diploma and bawled my eyes out because it was the completion of something that I worked so hard to attain. And now that I'm on the other side of that, I realized that over those last six years, while concentrating on that, I've let my physical fitness really slide. And so I want to get back into better shape. And I would like to be like Jason Bourne. <laughs> but if you take six years off, you've got a long way to go. So I, I just got this. It's, it's called a Fitbit. Anybody else have a Fitbit? Okay, so some of you guys do. We should like friend each other and get onto the challenge of this. So if you don't know what a Fitbit is, it basically is this thing that you wear on your wrist and it, it calculates how many steps you take during the course of a day. And the American Heart Association encourages us all to take at least 10,000 steps during the course of the day. It helps us as Americans to not be so sedentary. Well, as, as I got this, and then um, some of my extended family had Fitbits, and so I got invited into these challenges, and it's like a Monday through Friday challenge, and you kind of compare yourself, and you try to get 10,000 steps a day, and then at the end on Friday, you figure out who wins, and it tabulates that, and it, you can follow it on your smartphone or on your computer, and then on the weekend, you have a weekend warrior challenge, and then whatever you're doing, you try to get as many steps as you possibly can. So when I got this Fitbit, uh, I realized how much sitting I do during the course of the day. And I enjoy doing what I do because I get to sit across a table or a desk with some of you and listen to your story and help to process that and, and center our lives around the Word of God. But sometimes I go from sitting to my car to another meeting to uh, sitting down. And, and um, so that first week... I got smoked by my aunt. Just She just zoomed right past me. And I'm not talking like she beat me by like 45 steps. She beat me by like way too much. I can't even admit that. Like thousands, okay? And so uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've just been intentional to get up and walk around. And uh, in the evening, if I haven't reached the 10,000 step indicator, then I'll, I'll get out and take my family and walk around the park a couple of times um, before we head off to bed. And so, um, so it's helped me. But if I want to be Jason Bourne, this isn't going to get me there, right? <laughs> if I, if I want to be that physically... I need to get what, a gym membership, uh, a personal trainer, maybe an accountability partner that goes to the gym with me, and then I'm still not going to be Jason Bourne, <laughs> right? Because if I want to be like that, a guy that has like a bank account number in his hip and a safety deposit box with passports and weapons, 
the Fitbit's not going to get me there. And a gym membership to 24-hour fitness isn't going to get me there. I need a drill sergeant, you know, with a whistle that comes into my house and wakes me up and tells me what to do and makes me run through creeks and, you know, all those sorts of things to turn me into that. But as I've worn this, as I've worn this Fitbit, I've realized that this is how we interact with our faith. That we'll do just enough to get us just a little bit better than our friends or our family. And we'll compare ourselves Monday through Friday with our coworkers. And we'll compare ourselves on a weekend with somebody else that we know that does or doesn't go to church. And as long as we're better than my aunt, we're doing okay. But if all I wanna do is outpace my aunt, then I'm not really going for the level that Jason Bourne is at, right? So I think there's two categories in this room today. There's some of us spiritually that the Fitbit is the first step that we need to take spiritually. We need to welcome something in our life that'll get us up and moving, that'll get us reading the Bible, that'll get us coming to church more consistently, that'll get us praying at the beginning or the end of our day or even during our commute. But there's also some of us who know that we've been called onto the set and onto the stage to play a role that might be a little bit dangerous. And so we need to move beyond the point of comparison and into the realm of submission and accountability. And we need to start saying yes to all the things that God has already been whispering in our lives. Does that make sense? So, do any of you have a favorite verse of the Bible? Just show of hand. You've got a favorite verse. It's like, it's like spoken to you. Maybe you've had it for years. Um, I have favorite. I have a favorite verse of the Bible, and then, um, and then in different seasons it'll change. And I've got a new favorite verse in the Bible that I absolutely love. And so I'm gonna get us there. But first, I want to read to you guys out of Second Corinthians and work our way to my favorite verse of the Bible. So let me just get to Second Corinthians chapter two. starting in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So God always puts us on display and through us spreads the aroma of what? the knowledge of him. So through us, God is spreading the aroma of the knowledge of him. So if you know him, who calls himself our father, if you know him just a little bit, then the aroma that you are spreading 
is a little bit faint. But the more that you know our Father, then the aroma that you are spreading of the knowledge of him, it fills the room. So God always puts us on display. Now I'm gonna take you to this most random scripture that has become my favorite verse in the Bible. It's in 2 Chronicles. How many of you guys have ever been stuck in 2 Chronicles and you've been trying to read through the Bible in a year or something? You get to 2 Chronicles and you're like, dear Lord, why is this book in the Bible? You made it through 1 Chronicles, possibly, and now you're in 2 Chronicles and you're like, really, all over again? Didn't we read all of this in First and Second Kings? So I'm sitting on my back patio. I've created different places um, when it's cold, I have a room in my house that I got a chair and a little table and a lamp and I get a cup of coffee and I read my Bible. But when it gets warm like this, early in the morning, I'll go out on my back patio and sit there and listen to the birds and read my Bible and drink my coffee and push my way through whatever book of the Bible I'm in. And I try to do one in the New Testament and one in the Old Testament. Let me read this verse to you. And you're going to wonder why it's my favorite verse. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 17. The king had them cast in clay molds in the Jordan Valley between Succoth and Zeradah. That's it. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. Everybody say Succoth. Everybody say Zeradah. So I'm reading this, and I'm, I'm just like you guys trying to make it through, reading about all these things. And the context of 2 Chronicles chapter 4 is this. King David has passed away, and his son, King Solomon, is now commissioned to build the temple. And so they're living in Jerusalem at that time. The Israelites have conquered the promised land, and their territory is vast, and, and Solomon's kingdom is so wealthy and they, they've been given orders and, and uh, plans to build this temple. And so Solomon knows that he needs to fill this temple with all sorts of ornaments and religious objects for the sacrifices that will be made in that place, all these utensils. And they're going to be made with gold and silver and bronze. And it's just, it's the most beautiful building in the entire world at that point. And so what the chronicler is telling us in this chapter is all of the details of what's going on in that story. And Solomon hires this guy named Huram Abi, who was from Tyre, north of Jerusalem, north of Israel. And he hires this guy because he's known all over the world as a master craftsman. He can work in uh, any, any environment of art with gold and silver and bronze and even cloth and texture and, and wood and stone and all of this. So Herm Abi is the master craftsman put in charge of, uh, of building the temple and then filling it with all of these precious objects. So I'm reading this verse and I get to verse 17. The king had them cast in clay molds in the Jordan Valley between Succoth and Zeradah. And I was like, why is that in the Bible? Why do I care about Succoth and Zerida, right? So I, 
I take my study Bible and I read the notes and I look at a picture of Jerusalem. I flip back a couple of pages and I look at a map and I try to find where Succoth and Zeredah are. And I, and I, I find out that Succoth and Zeredah are, are north of Jerusalem by at least a day's journey, right on the river Jordan and on the east side of that. So they would be, if they existed today, in the, in the nation of Jordan. And nothing was still coming. I thought, okay, so Jerusalem is up on this mountain and there's not a lot of water there. And the, and the study notes say this, is that, is that because there wasn't enough water in Jerusalem, Hiram Abi had to cast these things in clay molds down by the river Jordan because there was more water and therefore more mud and clay to form these elements. I was like, all right. So I just did this. I said, I said God, why is this verse in the Bible? And I'm sitting out on my back patio and I just waited and waited. And then if you'll let me, I want to read to you what I wrote down in my journal when I feel like the Lord responded to that question. I was given this journal by Ted and Jody Smith who attend this campus and it's changed my life. They gifted me with blank pages and I've allowed the Lord to just speak to me on these pages. I'll write a verse down and I'll say, God, why is this in here? What do you want to reveal to me, to us through your word? The king had them cast in clay molds in the Jordan Valley between Succoth and Zeredah. I felt like the Lord said this. Sometimes God does his holiest work in the muddiest parts of our life. Do you see how these precious ornaments had to be formed in clay molds far away from where they were actually intended to be put on display? And so this artist was not working on the mountaintop. This artist was working all the way down in the valley, in the mud and in the clay. Sometimes God does his holiest work in the muddiest parts of our life. If you find yourself somewhere between Succoth and Zeredah, ask the Lord to shape you, mold you, make you, if your life sucketh. <laughs> right? If you're living in Zeredah, ask the Lord to shape you, mold you, make you. Because when life sucketh, our prayer is not, God, do your work in me. Our prayer is, God, get me out of here. Take me out of Zeredah. Take me from the valley and bring me to the mountaintop experience. We have a tendency to want to be set on display but have no desire to be cast. The valley experience is a necessary part in the process. Have patience. Don't rush through the process. If he hasn't lifted you, it means he is not finished forming you. See, Hiramabi took precious material and heated it up and then poured it into clay molds. 
And then he set it aside for a long time, almost as if he had forgotten about it because he needed that precious material to cool and to harden in the shape and the form that it was meant to be so that he could carry it back to the mountaintop and put it on display. You are made of something that is meant to display the glory of God, but first you must be formed. Why would you ever cover gold, silver, or bronze with mud or clay? You would only do it if you were shaping and forming it into something beautiful to be revealed at a later time. You realize that from Succoth and Zeradah, you can't even see Jerusalem. So sometimes God has you in a place and he's pressing on you and forming you and pouring you out, shaping you and making you. And the whole time, you can't even see where he's taking you. But we want so badly to be on the mountaintop and we want so badly to be put on display for the Lord, but we don't want to go through the process because the process is painful. The process is costly. The glory of God is about to be revealed in your life if you find yourself packed in mud. So moms that are changing diapers and doing dishes, dads that are working their hardest to set up their family, families that are doing their best just to make it to church. Somebody that's come in here today with a broken relationship that you don't even know how you're gonna move forward. And somebody that's come in here today with a promise that lies nearly lifeless in your heart, that you've almost given up on it. Solomon's dad wrote this before the temple was even made. Psalm 40, King David wrote this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. I wonder if Solomon ever turned back the pages of his dad's writings and watched as the master craftsman pulled those ornaments out of the mud and carried them so cautiously into the temple. And if he remembered those words that David had written. Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 17 said this, The king had them cast in clay molds in the Jordan Valley between Succoth and Zeradah. God, why did you put that in the Bible? Why do I care about two cities that don't even exist today? 
And the Lord said all that and pushed us this weekend into the process so that maybe he could reveal his heart later on. Any artists in the room? Anybody that paints or is a sculptor or anything like that? If, if you're anything like me, I, I, I like to paint. I don't get to do it too often. And you're, you kind of are committed. Once you say, okay, I'm going to do this, you're given up probably a couple of hours to do this, if not longer. And so if you're lucky enough to have an art studio in your house, or maybe you rent a space and you do that professionally, the, the idea of an art studio is that that's where the art is being made. And so the, the art studio doesn't have to be clean and sterile. It's, it's, it's naturally messy. But when you take the piece of art out of the studio and you bring it to the museum or you set it on the stand, it's a little bit more clean and sterile. But what's revealed in that moment is what happened to that piece of art when it was in the presence of the artist. Second Corinthians says that he always puts us on display. So even when we're in process, we're on display. So when we're on display, ask yourself this question. Am I revealing the heart and the handiwork of the artist? Am I in the presence of the artist long enough to be shaped and formed and molded so that when I'm put on display, even though the artist can't be seen, his heart can still be heard. Your identity, it's found in your mold. And Romans 8, 19 says this, that all creation groans for the sons of God to be revealed. Creation your family, your friends, your circle of influence groans for your identity to be revealed so that you can be set on display for the glory of God. So bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good Father. And we come before you today, Lord. And some of us find ourselves in the valley living near Zerida, and we maybe even feel somewhat forgotten about. But God, we know that you as the master artist have been shaping and forming and working in us and on us so that when you put us on display, we can correctly and accurately display your heart so that through us, you can spread everywhere the aroma of the knowledge of you. So God, we submit and we surrender to you, God. We ask you to take us to another level spiritually. Lead us, shape us, form us. And God, for that person in this room who finds themselves in the valley and they can't even see Jerusalem, they can't even see where you are taking them, God, I pray that you would be a comforter, that you would reveal your heart to them, God. 
Let your presence be ever present in our life. We love you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, everybody said.